It was during the Feast of Tabernacles when the most famous rabbi of all, Jesus, stood in the temple precincts in one of its courtyards. There, to make an astounding statement, he proclaimed, I am the light of the world. And the occasion on which he made this proclamation is fascinating. It was during this Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, during a time when there was a special light ceremony. In this courtyard were constructed four massive lampstands, or a menorah, we call them, candelabra. And they were illuminated. There was olive oil and wicks, and special priests climbed tall ladders in order to illuminate these lights. And it is said that they spread their light all through every nook and cranny in Jerusalem. And during this time, when the Jews lit these lampstands in order to commemorate the time when, centuries earlier, God led them through the wilderness journey with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this is a time when they all gathered to thank God for the light which he shed abroad in their way so as to guide them uh, through the night journey during their wilderness wanderings. And in this context, it was that this unique rabbi, Jesus, stood up and boldly, not whispered, proclaimed that he was the light, no, not merely of the Jewish people, but of the world. And he is essentially saying, as the pillar of fire provided illumination for the Jews during their wilderness wanderings, so too, I am the one who is the source of enlightenment for the entire world. And when he made this statement, you should know, some believed and followed him forever, much in the same fashion as we have chosen to today. But many others denied him and went in other directions and had an interest, in fact, in extinguishing the light because they preferred the darkness. The light exposed their sin, and they, we, nobody likes that. They wanted to keep it hidden and under wraps. Furthermore, the light exposed not only their sin problem, but their uh, entire human ability, inability to do anything about their sin problem. There's no way they could overcome it. They could fake it, and they could manifest some good behaviors here and there, but they know inside their heart is desperately wicked. And they knew no matter how hard they tried to pile up their good deeds, they couldn't erect a ladder of good deeds long enough to extend itself to an overwhelmingly, unapproachably holy God. And they didn't want the nearness of the light because the light exposed not only their sin, but their inability to overcome it. And so they wanted to extinguish the light. And the Lord Jesus entered into conversation with them. And it's recorded for us in John chapter 8. And if we take a look at it, just even at a few verses, you'll get a glimpse at how the Lord conversed with people like this, and you'll find it instructive because there are people like this today who we from time to time have the chance to speak with. So take a look at the conversation between the Lord and these 
They were religious leaders, even religious. They were Jewish religious leaders, even Jewish religious leaders. It's sad, preferred the darkness as over against the light. And it's with them that the Lord had conversation. Take a look. It's in John chapter 8, verse 13. We'll only look at a few verses tonight for a few reasons. One, there's plenty of information in them. And two, something is happening later tonight at 7.09. I, I've heard it said somewhere, something really important. So we want to try to be sensitive to that. So here, look, take a look, John 8. I don't want the word of God to get in the way of your, of, you know, of a ball game. So anyway, John chapter eight, verse 13. So the Pharisees, that's who we're talking about, a sect of Jewish scholars, religious leaders who largely preferred the darkness over the light. The Pharisees said to him, to this Jesus, you are testifying about yourself. Therefore, it doesn't say therefore in the text. I'm supplying it because that's the sense. You are testifying of yourself. Therefore, since your testimony is singularly yours, therefore, your testimony is not true. They're making a point. And they're saying it doesn't matter what you say. What you say is only said by you. And therefore, since it's only said by you, it can't be true. You see what they're saying? Listen to me. Jesus stands up and makes an unbelievable declaration at an unbelievable time. He declares he is the light of the world. That's the issue. And you know what they do? They avoid the issue with a redirect. They redirect with regard to a technicality in their law. They had a law. It's recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And it essentially says in a court of law, if someone brings an accusation against another, it doesn't, it can't, it's, it's without substance unless it is confirmed by a second or third witness. In other words, one person can't accuse you in a court of law of some violation and you'll be found guilty on that basis. No, that person's accusation has to be corroborated by the similar accusation of two or three others. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's the context. So now look what they do. They know that's the context. It's in a court of law where, in particular, a person's life is at stake. A man is facing charges of capital punishment, and so the testimony of one person can't seal the deal. That's a good principle of jurisprudence, isn't it? That's the deal. They know it. They're experts in the law. Instead, they're turning it on the Lord Jesus now, and they're bringing it into the public square. It's not a courtroom. It, there's no accusation made against another by another person. It's the Lord Jesus who's making a claim. He's saying, I'm the light of the world. And there's, they're invoking a text like Deuteronomy 19 and essentially saying, your testimony is invalidated because it's only you saying this. You see that? Do you buy that? Why would, why would these people, they're smart people, why would, why would they, they're committing intellectual su suicide. They, they, they are stretching way out of context the, the meaning of that verse of scripture that Moses gave. They're wrenching it, 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 they're distorting it, they're misapplying it. They know, why would they? Folks, when people prefer darkness over light, they will do anything to avoid the exposure the light brings. And so that's why they're, that's why they're doing these experts of the law. They, they, they are essentially, they are essentially saying, 
It's just you saying these things about yourself. Therefore, we automatically can dismiss them. They redirect. They evade the real issue. He's the light of the world. What do you think about it? And instead, they invalidate his claim entirely on the basis of a legal technicality. By the way, people will do this when you share your faith with them from time to time. You'll talk to them about the simple message of the gospel. It is quite simple and clear. And they will feel the heat of the light. They'll feel uncomfortable and a little convicted. And they'll bring up things like, uh, hey, well, that's fine what you're telling me, but what about the person who hasn't heard about this Jesus? Does that person go to hell? Have you ever had someone bring that up? Well, a good response at that point uh, is to say, I, I greatly appreciate your concern for the person who hasn't heard what you are hearing right now, but the point is, you are hearing what you're hearing right now. It's just you and me, this imaginary person who hasn't heard, is not even here, shouldn't be part of our discussion. So let me bring you back to the matter at hand. Here is what I'm telling you. Here is what you're hearing about Jesus, who is the light. What is your response to him? That's always your job. Bring people back to the real issue. See, it's just a redirect. It's a smokescreen, just like the Pharisees issued to the Lord Jesus. Or, or have you had people say, you know, you're quoting to me from this Bible, but the Bible is full of errors. Have you ever had someone? When I'm in an obnoxious mood, I like to say, oh, yeah, give me one. And then I, and they don't have one. Then I, I like to say, you haven't read it, have you? But I don't do that in most cases because I, I just want to avoid the distraction. The Bible is full of errors. So usually I say... We can discuss that later, but for now, let me share with you something from the Bible which is so clear, I'll bet you can't find anything erroneous about it. And you can share John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind, only begotten son, that whoever, that's the most inclusive word of all time, if you don't want to be left out, well, man, man, that's an inclusive word, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Here's the option. You either perish or you have eternal life. And you can say to that person, I don't know what errors you may find in that verse. I don't think you can find any. It's kind of crystal clear. And then you can say, we'll talk about the alleged errors of the Bible later. But for now, what is your response to this excerpt of the Bible? So you see, you always want to bring people back to the real issue, as you'll see, as you'll see the Lord did. And so the Jewish religious leaders essentially say uh, to Jesus, you are testifying about yourself. So what? It's really a non-issue. This doesn't address at all his claim to be the light of the world. It only addresses the fact that he, in their mind, alone said it. But can't a person, one person, can't that person make a truth claim about himself? Do you automatically strike from the record what someone says about themselves because they're the one saying it? It just doesn't make any sense. And there's also this to consider. Is their objection even true? Their objection is you're the only one claiming these things about you. You're the only one who's making this testimony. You're the light. But that's not true. You may remember several years ago when we were in John chapter 5, and um, 
where another, uh, several sources of testimony about the Lord Jesus were, were enumerated. They should know about this. If they don't know about this, because it took place in John chapter 5, which is before John chapter 8, they, should have, they were privy to these other sources of testimony about the Lord Jesus. And the implication is, it is um, voluntary blindness. So, so, for instance, back there in John chapter 5, just to refresh your memory... Uh, there is testimony, the testimony of John the baptizer, John the immerser. In John chapter 5, verse 33, listen, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. So it isn't just Jesus making claims. Here's a second source of testimony about him. John the Baptist affirmed the veracity of the Lord's claims. Secondly, there is testimony, the testimony of the works of Jesus, which he performed, and uh, which are mentioned in John chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, these testify about me that the Father has sent me. So it isn't just the Lord laying claim to a certain position of divinity. No, John the Baptist said he is the Messiah. And also, there are the works of God entrusted to him. These signs attested to his Messiahship. Well, there's not just the testimony of John and the testimony of the works the Lord performed. How about this? There is the testimony of God himself mentioned in John chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. And so you have John's testimony. You have the testimony of the Lord's miraculous works. You have the testimony of God Almighty. And then you have this fourth testimony of the Lord Jesus mentioned in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. These are experts in the law, and he holds the written scriptures there, written scriptures, the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament. That's what they had. He holds it right up to them, the Torah, the Talmud, all of the writings of their prophets. He said, these, you search them diligently. You think somehow mystically eternal life will emerge from them. You're partially right, but it's not the words. It's it's. It's, it's who the words point to. And your own scriptures, he said, testify of me. So let me give you an example of a passage of Old Testament scripture, very much available to these Jewish religious leaders in that day and today that perhaps you're familiar with. If not, I would like to help you to be more familiar with it. It's Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read it for you in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you this. When a Jewish kid becomes 13, he has a rite of passage called a bar mitzvah, which means a son of the law. At 13, in our tradition, that's when that young man becomes accountable to God for his compliance with the law of God. His parents no longer answer for him no, the youngster bears the responsibility. He becomes a man, spiritually speaking, at the age of 13. And at the bar mitzvah, it's a very important rite of passage for Jewish kids. 
the rabbi uh, instructs the bar mitzvah boy in the chanting of a passage of scripture. It's not arbitrary. It's according to our Jewish religious year. According to Jewish calendaring, every Shabbat, Saturday, a half Torah or passage of the Torah is to be read in the synagogue. And on the Saturday closest to the date of birth of this bar mitzvah boy, the, the appropriate passage of scripture would be assigned to him. And you study it. The rabbi, you go to the rabbi for, for, for study. You read it and in Hebrew and you learn to pronounce it and you chant it. You, you kind of sing it. That's how, that's how you do it. And so on the date of my bar mitzvah, I looked this up years later because I was curious. On the date of my bar mitzvah, the passage of scripture, which according to Jewish calendaring, I should have been assigned was Isaiah 53. But I was not given Isaiah 53 by the rabbi. I was given Isaiah 54. Interesting. It was a mystery to me years later when I became a believer. What happened to chapter 53? The rabbis skipped from 52 to Isaiah 54. What happened with Isaiah 53? And then my research revealed to me the rabbis pretty much strike it from the record. Why? Because they don't want young Jews like me or any Jews to make the mistake of assuming Isaiah 53 is speaking of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. I am not lying to you. They don't want to confuse us, possibly lead us into error. The error of assuming Isaiah 53 is speaking of Jesus. Now I'm gonna read it to you. You tell me who you think it's speaking of. It was written, just to give you a frame of reference, about 700 years before this Jesus walked on the earth. About 700 years. Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, wrote this. Listen to it. You tell me who you think it's speaking of. Isaiah 53, verse one. Who, it opens with a question. Who has believed our message? That's a question uttered to Jewish people by some Jewish people who have come to believe. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse two, for he, wow, the arm of the Lord mentioned in verse one is now referred to as a he in verse two. I ask you the question, who is the he? Reserve judgment until we read a little further. He grew up before him. This he grew up before him. This he, whoever the he is, grew up before him. The him is God. He grew up before him, how? Like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Hmm. The people who had a messianic expectation were expecting a tree-like Messiah, not a tender root. Are you kidding me? How ordinary can you get? A root out of parched ground? There's nothing, there's nothing special about this. A root popping up in a dry area. Maybe like Israel, for instance. I'm just saying. It's just not very impressive here. The birth of this he is so, well, it's so odd and unusual. 
And then the text goes on. He, this he, whoever the he is, has no stately form or majesty uh, that we should look upon him. If this he walked into this room, nobody would stand up and give him a seat. He didn't look so special. He didn't look like Ewell Brenner or one of these movie star type people. You know, the he looked, whoever the he is looked ordinary. He was so ordinary in appearance that nobody would, you know, take a second glance. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He did not look, in other words, very regal at all. This he did not look royal. It's not that he was ugly. No, the text isn't saying that. It's, it's saying he was ordinary. That defied Hebrew messianic expectations. You know, they're looking for a conquering ruler to beat up on Rome. This is a root out of dry ground, nothing special. He didn't stand head and shoulders above the crowd at all. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. It's not just that people were not attracted to him. It was worse. They despised him. And the text says they did not esteem him. Let me tell you that the word esteem in the Hebrew, it's an accounting term. It has to do with valuation, how you value something. It means an assignment of value. He, this mysterious he, was not assigned a high value. He was devalued. He was not thought to be worth much, not very important. He was a man of sorrows, the text says, and acquainted with grief of his own. And yet, verse 4, surely our griefs, he had grief of his own, but our griefs he himself bore. I ask you, who is the he? This is written by Isaiah, a Jewish guy, 700 years before this Jesus even came around. I'm asking you, who is this? When the Lord said, you say my testimony about myself is only mine, he says, no, you search your scriptures, but with blind eyes. If your eyes were open, you would see your scriptures speak of me. And here's one of the places, in my opinion, where it does. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Though he had griefs and sorrow of his own, he bore our griefs and sorrows, most of which are due to our sin. His were not due to sin. Ours are, yet he bore ours. Though we are responsible for the stuff we brought upon ourselves, still he voluntarily chose to bear the griefs and sorrows our own sin have gotten us into. And yet, what's the response? We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. We said, he's afflicted. He's, you know what? You know why he's this he? You know why he's going through what he's going through? Because he's on the outs with God. That was the accusation, you see? That's what it says. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our Look at the number of times it says our in verse uh, five. He was pierced through. No, no, no. He's not on the outs with God. He didn't. His griefs and sorrows weren't due to his sin. They're due to our sin. You are falsely accusing him. You think God has afflicted him. Oh, no. He was pierced through. Pierced through. Hmm. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of 
our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, whipping, he was healed. He was pierced through. He was crushed for our... Folks, that is a reference to crucifixion. But what's fascinating is it didn't exist then. (laughs) This is all by anticipation. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment devised by the Persians and then perfected later by the Romans. They found out how to elongate the suffering of the crucified victim. But it didn't even exist here. (laughs) This whole description of the demise of this mysterious he, the form by which he was executed, didn't even exist. Didn't even exist yet. It says he was pierced through, he was crushed, scourged, and by his scourging, we are healed. We are healed. Physical healing, sure, but not primarily, in my opinion, yet. The primary healing that this mysterious he came to provide is spiritual. Why? Because we are really afflicted, not so much in body as much as in soul. That's where the real pathology lies. We are sin sick. He came to give us his best. Physical healing is a blessing. Please don't misunderstand. But his best is to effect a healing in the broken relationship between us and an otherwise unapproachably holy God. You know what someone said one time? I don't know who said this. Someone said, to create, God had but to speak. And it was done. But to redeem, he had to bleed. And this he did. And Isaiah tells us about it. 700 years before this, Jesus was crucified. When he says, your own scriptures testify of me. Do you see what he's meaning here? Who is Isaiah 53 speaking of? Is it Buddha? Is it Mohammed? Is it Moses? Keep your thinking cap on. You don't have to make a blind leap from logic to faith. Be logical, logically, rationally. Who is this speaking of? 700 years before what it speaks of was fulfilled. Is this text saying that everybody has sinned? Yeah, you're darn tooting it is. Look at verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who is the him? When we go to Israel, this is our primary uh, form of communication. Isaiah 53, 6. We try to win the opportunity of sharing this with people and simply asking, who do you think the him is? Verse 7 describes him further. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus, the Lamb of God, quietly submitted to his death. You know this to be true as we read the Gospels. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Who is this grand, glorious sin substitute? Who is it who died in my place and yours? 
His grave, verse 9, here's another clue. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. That's what it says. 700 years before Joseph of Arimathea walked the streets of Jerusalem and provided a burial place in his tomb, a rich man's tomb, for none other than Jesus of Nazareth, who had no money for burial. Joseph of Arimathea, when he provided this gracious provision of a burial place for the Lord, I don't think he realized at all he was fulfilling prophecy, the very prophecy of Isaiah 700 years earlier. Verse 10, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 9 goes on to say, all this, although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In other words, he did not, he did not sin in deed. He had done no violence, nor did he sin in word. There was no deceit in his mouth. Who could this be who's sinless? Who is this he? What he do you know of who is without sin? You see? And then it, it goes on to say in verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. God was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Folks, the suffering and death of this one, the suffering death of the Messiah is the Father's will. My people are called Christ killers. <clears throat> we bear responsibility. But that's not an accurate accusation. Nobody, nobody could take the life of, of Christ. It, it was the Father's will that he be, I didn't say people are absolved of responsibility, but, but, but sovereign God saw to it. Nobody could snuff out the life of the Son of God if his father didn't permit it, this text says in advance, the Lord was pleased to crush him. We hate this. That is so offensive to us. A father pleased with the death of a son. It's so offensive to our sensibilities, and I'll tell you why. It's because we underestimate the, I guess we can call it, we underestimate the irrational love of God for us that he would not withhold even his only begotten son. We dismiss it from the record because we would never do that. I wouldn't sacrifice my son for you, nor you for me. I know that. But God is categorically different. It actually pleased the father for his son to be crushed if it would serve the purpose of him being a guilt offering, sacrificed to absolve us of guilt. We don't get it because we underestimate the irrational love of God for unlovable ones like you and I. Mm. The text says he will see his offspring. He will prolong his ways. Wait a second. I thought death called the final word. I thought death was it. I thought death was terminal. Not in this case. I thought death was final. No way. He was crushed, he was buried, he died, but he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. You know what that means to me? Life after death. You know what that means? Resurrection. This is a hint at the resurrection in Isaiah 53, 700 years before this he, Jesus, was crucified, buried, and rose up from death. And who? It says he will see his offspring. Who, by the way, are his offspring? Let me give you a hand. John chapter 1, verse 12. We were there one time. But as many as received him, 
To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are his spiritual offspring. And this text says, though he died, he lives so that he will see one day you, his offspring, face to face. That's Isaiah 50. Folks, that's the gospel in the Old Testament. Right there. And the Lord Jesus said, your own scriptures testify of me. You search them with diligence. Every jot and tittle. You do all kinds of interesting gymnastics in them. You count numbers and all this stuff. And you miss the forest for the trees. They speak of me. If you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, you're blind to the message of the Old Testament scriptures. You don't have to wait for the New Testament to find Jesus. You find him in Isaiah 53 if you want. That's what it says. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Who could that possibly be? And finally, verse 12, therefore, I will allot him, God says, I will allot him, this him, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. He was despised, and he was uh, uh, rejected by men, but he will be given by God the place of highest honor. I will allot him a portion with the great, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus died between two sinners. Yet he himself bore the sin. He had none of his own. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The father put the son in a mediating position between him, God, and us. And the son accepted it. He said, Father, your will, not mine, be done. And so Jesus got right in the thick of it. And he became an intercessor, a mediator, a bridge between us, separated from God by sin, and an otherwise unapproachably holy God. And we can take Jesus in the form of man by one hand. And Jesus, the Son of God, has his hand in the Father's hand. And the Son can join us together forevermore. That's what this he did. If you don't see Jesus in Isaiah 53, you prefer the darkness over the light. You're no different than the Pharisees we're reading about. And I ask you, what is the darkness doing for you? What are you getting out of it? Temporary gratification, then guilt and shame and all the rest. And this one offers eternal life, the light. Folks, I want to tell you something. Jesus filled the gap with the cross and he made a way, a bridge for us to God. And my people should know it. We've been exposed to Isaiah 53, even though our rabbis tried to keep it from us. And I want to tell you this. In Isaiah chapter 53, it was predicted that the Messiah would be disfigured by suffering. 700 years later, Jesus was struck, spat upon, and mocked. Isaiah 53 uh, predicts that the Messiah would come from humble beginnings. 700 years later, Jesus grew up in rather insignificant Nazareth. Isaiah 53 predicted that the Messiah would be rejected by many. 700 years later, Jesus was mocked, blasphemed, reviled, and crucified. Isaiah 53 predicted that the Messiah would heal many. And 700 years later, Jesus amazed people as he went about giving sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, and ridding people of manifold diseases. Isaiah 53 
predicted that the Messiah would voluntarily take our punishment upon himself. And 700 years later, Jesus declared, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Isaiah 53 predicted that the Messiah would remain silent during his suffering. And 700 years later, Jesus did not defend himself, not to Herod, not to Pontius Pilate, not to the Sanhedrin. In Isaiah 53, it was predicted that the Messiah would be pierced through and died. And 700 years later, Jesus had his hands, his legs, and his side pierced through, and he died on a cross. Isaiah 53 predicts that the Messiah would be buried with a rich man. And 700 years later, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Isaiah 53 predicted that the Messiah would not remain dead, but would see his offspring prolong his days and be exalted. And 700 years later, Jesus rose from death three days after the fact, after his crucifixion, and he lives today at the right hand of the Father and in the hearts of millions of people, and I hope we're part of it, filled with joy because they are his spiritual offspring. Folks, the religious leader in Jesus' day refused to hear the testimony of the other sources who testified of him. They invalidated the Lord's claim to be light of the world, saying it is singularly yours, but they ignored the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of God himself, the testimony of the miraculous works of the Lord, and the testimony of their own scriptures, such as Isaiah 53. And the Lord responds to them back in John chapter 8, in verse 14, and he says, even if I testify about myself, even if I do, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. They don't know of his eternal past, nor do they know of his eternal future. They don't know that he is, has no beginning nor any end. They don't know that he always was. He's not a created being. And they don't know of his eternal destiny, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign. They don't know that he's the Lord above all lords and the king above all kings. They don't know these things. And he is invalidating their judgment on him because they don't know what they're talking about. They, as is true with all humans, are present bound. They don't know the past, eternity. They don't know the future, eternity. They don't know anything. How dare they invalidate the claims of the one who is preexistent, who doesn't have any end nor any beginning. That's what he's saying. He is saying, you can't know of who I am by your own intellect, only by revelation. And there is revelation about me to you, and you are running from it because you prefer the darkness over the light because your deeds are evil. I know where I came from and where I am going, but Jesus says, you do not, you do not know. And so he says, even if I testify of myself, I don't, but even if I do, my testimony is true. Can you please listen to some of the testimony of Jesus? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And nobody can come to the Father but 
by me. I beseech you, do not run from Jesus who is the light in a vain attempt to hide your sin. Run to Jesus because of your sin because he stands ready to forgive it. Run to the light. Be attracted. Be drawn to the light. Don't run from it. It's a vain attempt to escape the inevitable. Someone tried. He lived in dark places until he came to the light. And he, being gifted, wrote a poem about his painful experience until he came to the light. Here's what he wrote. In evil long I took the light, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins. His blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. The second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou may live. Why would you run from that? Jesus is the light of the world. Why would you run from the light? What are you getting from the darkness? Run to the light. That poem was penned by someone you know of, John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. Surely it's amazing grace that a God repulsed, angry with sin, still would be gracious and merciful enough to provide a means by which the sinner could be forgiven. Why would you run? from that God. The mysterious he of Isaiah 53 is not so mysterious, pretty obvious. Who else can fill the bill of Isaiah 53 other than the Lord Jesus? That's just one passage pointing to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Almighty God has not left us without a testimony. It's not just the words of Jesus alone. Can you testify of Jesus? Has your life changed? The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's new. Are you new? To what do you attribute the newness? Tell somebody. Tell somebody. You and I maybe can't write like John Newton, but we could express. Once I was lost, and now I'm saved. And let me tell you what Jesus, the light, has done for me. Let me tell you that though he exposed the horrors of my sin, and that was terribly uncomfortable, at the same time, he revealed to me a solution to it. His sacrifice in my place. Run to Jesus. Be enlightened. Be filled with light. See things you have never seen before. Perceive life, reality, and eternity in ways the darkness has kept hidden from you. Run to Jesus and live. This is our prayer, O oh God, that those of us who have come to you would keep coming not make it a one-time event and now nothing's coming from it. No, no, no. 
Thank you for access to the throne of grace every moment of our lives. Help us to keep running towards you, not away. And for the one or ones here who have not yet said, oh God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I'm like the guy who wrote the poem. I'm tired of the darkness. It's killing me. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. You have enlightened me and made me aware of my sin. There's nothing I can do about it, but you have resolved it. Thank you for dying in my place. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Shed your light abroad in my soul and make me to be a reflection of your light to those around me who are still in darkness. In this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.